Wellbeing Creative Podcast is fueled by my good friends at Great Lakes Coffee Roasting Co. Celebrating their 25th year anniversary, Great Lakes Coffee believes that coffee is no longer a commodity. It defines a community. It tells their story, local, global, and everywhere in between. Sourcing direct from farmers, roasting here in Detroit, and always handcrafted, this is coffee as it's meant to be. So, whether you're sipping from your favorite mug at home or savoring the last drop at one of their three shops or countless coffee bars, know that you're part of the story. Because at the Great Lakes Coffee Roasting Company, it's not just about what you're drinking, it's about the journey to your cup and where we'll go from there. Wellbeing creative listeners can get their caffeine fixed by using code WELLBEING for 10% off your first order at greatlakescoffee.com. Again, that's promo code WELLBEING for 10% off your first order at greatlakescoffee.com. I didn't move home from India. I'm like, oh, I'm saved. It was actually terrible when I moved home. It was the worst years of my life, really. I thought like the worst years were after my sister passed away, but actually the knowing of the knowledge, but not being able to integrate it, that was that deep, dark moment of life that I had. You're listening to Wellbeing Creative, a podcast that breaks down stigmas and creates a conversation surrounding well-being in the creative fields. My name is Harrison Diskin, and I'll be sitting down with creators of all types to discuss how they manage the inevitable stress, anxiety, and health choices that come along with creating in today's wild world. Hey, it's Harrison, and my guest today has had a huge impact on my life in a relatively short amount of time. Casey Must-Lieb is a yoga teacher, a philosopher, a friend to so many, and the owner of the growing Citizen Yoga brand, which has studios in Detroit, Royal Oak, Bloomfield, and now a newly opened Cleveland studio. Her experience with loss and grief led her to launch into a very spiritual path, which she now uses as an outlet and a platform for others to learn from, confide in, and seek refuge in. I can confidently say she has changed my life through the practice of yoga. And with that, I'm very excited to welcome Casey Must-Lieb to Wellbeing Creative. Casey, welcome to the show. I'm happy we could finally make this happen. Me too. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, We're going to get right into it. Yoga. You've been practicing (laughs) yoga since the age of 10, correct? Correct. That seems like the right place to start. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, So what did your practice look like at 10 years old? It was really hard. (laughs) <laughs> Were you going to like a studio? Yeah. So uh, my uncle actually started mm-hmm. us in yoga. He had scoliosis, severe scoliosis, mm-hmm. still does. Um, he still practices at the studio. Mm-hmm. And um, this is way back when yoga wasn't cool and nobody knew what a yoga mat was. And um, my mom was really into fitness. And so we started going as a family to class as an outing. Mm-hmm. It was like we went on all these like exercise field trips as children hmm. and yoga became one of those field trips. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a carpeted studio, which is like f- funny to think of now. Right. Yeah. And, um, it was very hot and sometimes it's really hard to remember your first down dog. Mm-hmm. But I remember like very vivid memories of struggling so much through down dog and warrior one and trying to keep your arms lifted. Mm-hmm. And I think that we forget now that we're so familiar with the practice, what that was like, but. Yeah, you can just like kind of, your body just hops right into it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like second nature. Exactly. So there was that memory. That's cool. Uh, why is yoga so important to you, like in general? <laughs> um, 
I think that yoga has changed a lot in my life. So yoga wasn't that important to me. Mm -hmm. It holds a lot of really positive childhood memories. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, the use of music in yoga. When I was younger, I didn't really have as much of a physical relationship to yoga, even though I was an athlete. Um, I didn't really have as much of a spiritual relationship to yoga because the yoga I practiced when I was a kid was not really that spiritual. It was more physical. Mm -hmm. Um, But the music and the chanting and um, that was there and it really helped me release a lot of my anxiety looking back and helped. I have a natural tendency toward um, nostalgia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it sort of feeds that need of like, even though I was a child, I couldn't be nostalgic about something that happened a year ago. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's that's how it was when I started. And yeah. then over time in high school, it was more um, helpful for sports. Once I got into college and I started going through some mental health issues of my own, mm-hmm. um, it became a refuge away from all of the chaos of my life. And I was still the youngest person in a class. So that was in um, 2002 to 2006 mm-hmm. in Chicago. And everybody was at least 30 plus and I was 18 years old and I would just, nobody would talk in the studio. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, the noble silence concept. And it was so serious and scary. And I would just like count the seconds till class started so I could just practice yoga. And um, when I traveled, it became sort of this, beautiful expression of taking care of myself, Mm -hmm. especially because I was traveling alone for so many years. And then as a family, it just always remained this background of connection and self-reflection. That's cool. Um, So, you know, going back to how your practice and and teaching style is so different than what you experienced growing up, um, you are focused on alignment-based yoga. Mm -hmm. Uh, How does that differ from other yoga practices? Well, it's very different than what I grew up with. So maybe start there. Um, I grew up in flow yoga, mm-hmm. which was great because I didn't know any better. And what's, it's sort what's of like, flow yoga. It's like hot, dark, mm-hmm. flow your body, throw it around and see what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, the concept is sort of like flow how you feel. Um, and as a kid, um, you believe. So whatever yoga practice you start in, which is really interesting, you believe that one to be the truth. Mm-hmm. Or oh, superior I, than all right? others. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes it just, I think, takes time for you to grow up and mature in your yoga practice to realize that it's not that there's one right way, but there's a more intelligent way to approach it. And there's a more well-rounded spiritual way to approach physical practice. Mm-hmm. And it took me many years. I mean, I'm 25 years into practice. And um, flow yoga for me, I was injured by the time I was 18. I thought I couldn't do a chaturanga. You know, I used to get this um, sort of like shoulder clicking Mm. in my rotator cuff. And I was a D1 athlete, so it was confusing. What what athletics did you play? Um, I played uh, field hockey. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very serious, as you could imagine. Yeah, it's a tough sport too. Um, Ice hockey and um, lacrosse. Wow. Those are all hard on your body. Yeah. Yeah. So I was very serious. Um, (laughs) I used to go like two hours before practice started. Uh-huh. 
and practice yeah and then practice and then go home and practice what what about that discipline of showing up early like has maybe you know led towards a uh, more rounded yoga practice for you well i think that i'm naturally very um driven mm-hmm. it's just like in my dna to be very like forward moving mm-hmm. um and practicing <laughs> practicing for long extended periods of time, I don't really relate that to the physical practice. I think of it more like I have stamina to withstand and really try to make my yoga practice throughout my whole day. So the moment you wake up, you're studying, you're thinking, mm-hmm. you go to yoga, even if you don't feel like it, cause we all don't feel like it at times. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about how I can integrate more devotion and how I can use my physical body to serve other people. Mm-hmm. So there is a, you have to become sort of like tireless in that. Mm-hmm. And as an athlete, you start to think about business and relationships more objectively because you've been through sort of like a training. Mm-hmm. And I think that athletics has really helped me hone the craft of teaching because I don't take feedback as personally, right. which, you know, I always describe this to trainees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was a high school athlete and, uh, you know, learning how to, you know, take that criticism and grow from it rather than become a little bit more introverted or reclusive from it is really important. And very hard right now. Yeah. Um, I feel like because we are so exposed and we expose so much um, of our identity publicly through Mm -hmm. all avenues, as you and I were talking about when we were just on retreat. Right. um, We were talking about the impact of social media and um, the differences between men and women and Etc. And we're definitely going to unpack a lot doing more it. social yeah, media too. Exactly. So. Um, but not taking something so personally. Um, I think of a coach as somebody who can objectively see the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm teaching training, it's very difficult because I'm looking at the whole picture. I'm not just looking at the person and their experience. I'm looking at how they're impacting the organism of the classroom. Right. It's always bigger than just the one person. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you can't see like, should I step right? Should I, should I not? And so taking that mentality and trying to put it into teaching allows for you to take in information so much quicker because you're not personalizing it. Right. So do you think that, you know, the camaraderie around the sports that you played also helped maybe grow part of the community sense that you, you definitely bring to Citizen? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. I think um, I had two very distinctly different athletic experiences in my life. Mm-hmm. So my first athletic experience, I went to Cranbrook. Mm-hmm. Um, I played sports from middle school all the way through high school, and I had incredible experiences in, in athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got into college and had a really negative experience in athletics. And so so maybe, yes, they they both grew part of it. One is I grew an understanding of how to relate to people and and see that there's a value in each person on the team. And the best part about sports, I don't know if you found this, was like you were always closest to the most unsuspecting person. Right. It was like friend groups actually did not exist on sports teams. So maybe it maybe it did inform it more than I realized. Yeah. You know, it's not like you're just going to be, you know, if you're in the weight room and you're the, the person who's, you know, getting recruited by the D1 schools, you're not necessarily going to be 
always friends with the other ones that are getting recruited. You might be friends with, you know, essentially the water boy or, or the, the person who picks up the, the uniforms at the end and, and does the, the laundry, you know? Yeah. And, and, I, and I actually read or heard you talk about your time in India and the job you were given was to like fill the salt on the table yeah. and the condiments, make sure that, that, that there was you know, what was necessary. And it instilled this like idea of no job is better than another one. Yep. And so that's like an important thing that I think you were able to take away from that, but maybe even learned earlier than that. Yeah. And I, I think that athletics definitely gave me a community of people that I didn't expect to be my community. Mm -hmm. And each team was so special, mm -hmm. like sort of like how a retreat, like we, when we were on retreat, it was like the most special experience you want to, you don't want it to end. Right. You're just like, Oh my God, this is in such a sacred group of people. Mm -hmm. um, and in college, the team that I was on, I felt very isolated and very unhappy on. And so in that way, it probably did inform how I created citizen yoga. It sort of introduced me to a, a level of isolation that I had never experienced. Mm -hmm. And um, I struggled with that for many years in my twenties. And that is a huge aspect of what citizen grew out of. It grew out of in a, a negative experience into a positive experience, which was, I don't want people to feel alone in a group of people. Right. Especially a, a, a place that you're supposed to feel uplifted yeah. um, and supported, especially in an athletic team. And so, or a yoga studio. Or a yoga studio. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of yoga studios miss that. You know, and I'm not calling anyone, you know, right. worse or lesser, yep. but I think that there's an emphasis on community at Citizen that's different. Um, so, I mean, going to like just the pure numbers, you have 2,700 students as of an article I read from last year. So mm -hmm. I know that it's increased uh, tremendously since then even. Um, but beyond that, the community surrounding the studios is, is uh, as tight-knit and as personal as it is. It also is so open and uh, welcoming. And it's, uh, you know, such a great place for, for people to come for the physical practice, obviously, but also just to have that sense of community. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's refreshing in the world of yoga to have that as well. I mean, so that's, that's what it sprung out of. It, for me, it, I never felt like I belonged in any community, not because I didn't. Actually, I was probably, we were like the first seven students in one of the biggest yoga studios in our city or was the biggest yoga studio in the city, however it is now. Mm -hmm. And um, nobody ever knew my name. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe, but there was yeah. sort of like this godliness complex that was happening. And like um, one of the things that Citizen really does stand for, and I, it's very hard to maintain sometimes, but like there is no cult of personality within the studio. And like I, even though, yes, I create created Citizen, like everybody is equally as important. And that's very difficult to actually translate. Mm -hmm. um, and it. I can't remark on other studios because I really don't spend any time in them anymore because I really am just in Citizen. Mm -hmm. um, I go to New York a lot and I have found the exact same experience that I had actually when I was a kid, which was sort of, it's sort of isolating even in the first visit. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of show up, do your thing and get out of there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and it's not to say that anything's bad or wrong. It's just, that's not why I go to yoga. Right. I think that... I experienced when if we when and if we talk about India, I experienced a level of satsang, um, which is good company. 
What's the word? Satsang. Mm-hmm. It means good company. Mm-hmm. It's um. It doesn't just mean good people. Good company can also mean um, your senses are contacting good sense objects. Mm-hmm. You don't even realize how impacted you are by various sense objects. You just are. The music you listen to. The music you the, listen. The furniture you have in your house. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, yes, people. Right. People have a humongous impact on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that helped me create this idea of what I wanted citizen to be. I don't know if I really. It's a mix. Sometimes I'm I'm I don't really believe that something this beautiful could actually exist in the world. Like mm-hmm. on retreat, that that was the beautiful element, like a community where people all love each other actually. Right. That there was no divider. And that is such a rare experience to feel. And I don't think that you feel like that every moment in citizen yoga in the real world, of course. Right. You know? Well, that's why we go on retreat. It takes <laughs> a lot of the variables that would stop that from happening and just removes them. Yeah. And so the conditions are just right for that. Exactly. And I, I think that I was saying this just recently, that citizen was just an excuse. Like yoga, we use yoga to bring you there. Mm-hmm. But I really, that's just an excuse for me to create a community of people that I want to spend my time with. Right. And that really want to live inspired lives. And for me personally, yeah. sorry to step in, but it's no, just please. like, um, you know, before going to Citizen, which is the first studio I practiced at, and I reluctantly held off on going to a yoga class. And we talked about this on retreat as well. Um, I had this, you know, preconceived notion that all yoga studios were similar. And you show up, you do your work, you get out. There's that godly godliness complex that you talked about that's evident in many studios. And I just assumed that that was going to be the same everywhere. And so for me, you know, walking into citizen yoga and putting my mat down and 10 minutes into the class, you're giving me praises, but not just praises, but praises by my name. Mm. And that just like instantly melted all of that that preconceived notion, all that anxiety that surrounded mm. going to a yoga class, it just melted that away. And in doing a little bit of research for this podcast, I found that there are many classmates that feel the exact same way. And without the, you know, that one moment where you knew everyone's name and, and there was no uh, greater than thou, like, you know, uh, feeling in the air, uh, I think that's what really builds the community and it helps keep people coming back for more than just a physical practice. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I would be saying that yoga changed my life if it was just a physical practice, because we can get that in many different practices. Yeah. I mean, there. I think that that's something that we're, I don't know if I want to use the word fighting, maybe battling, because I like mm-hmm. the idea that we can like take philosophy, which philosophy oftentimes is like set on battlefields. Mm-hmm. And we're sort of battling that n- narcissism in some ways of how do we maintain the level of not like sort of like a, I, I'm a God, I'm your teacher in this way. I, I, I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but actually bring it back to this like really beautiful place of like, it's not that everybody's at the same level because sitting in the seat of the teacher is a very respected, um, you hold a huge responsibility. I mm-hmm. feel a huge responsibility when I sit in the seat. Mm-hmm. But then once I sit, stand and move off the seat, then I'm, I'm like you, a student, I'm a student. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in your life. I want to understand you, but I'm also, I am you. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge, that was a huge learning um, point to me. Uh, somebody had asked me once, 
I was on a panel and I always like sort of regret my answer, which is funny that it sticks with me. It was, it was recently, maybe three months ago. They, they asked me what my superhero power was. I don't know if I told you this. Uh-huh. You said remembering people's names? Yeah. Right. And I, I didn't say that in the moment, actually. Uh-huh. I, I can't remember actually what I said. Yeah, and yeah. I was so bummed because now thinking about it, the only superhero power that I really feel I have is remembering, remembering people's names. Yeah. Because I, I even when we talk, uh, if for people who are listening, um, if I'm in a conversation with somebody or when you're in a conversation with somebody, um, never saying she. Like, mm. so if I say, if we're, us three are having this conversation and you're talking, I would never refer to you as he, he mm. said, because immediately it sounds like you're disconnected from the person and who they are. And so if I default to he, I'll always correct myself and say, Harrison, mm. Harrison said X, Y, and Z. So even in teacher training or, you know, when we're working in a group of people, if I default to she said that, I'll shift it and say, oh, you know, Morgan said that. Right. Because it immediately shifts it into a one-on-one relationship of you're important enough for me to remember. And even saying shifting your um, wording around remembering names. So. Uh, we we use this and it I use this because it's impactful, not because it's some sales technique. Mm-hmm. The difference between I forgot your name or remind me of your name. Right. Those two statements are extremely different in the experience of the subject that you're talking to. So instead of me ever saying, like, I didn't forget you because you're not important. Or forgettable. You're not forgettable. Right, right. I just want you to remind me because I'm a human being that has a lot going on and I'm very interested in your name. And I always say it takes me about two times, but mm-hmm. you have to be in class, mm-hmm. um, but it'll take me two times and I'll never forget. Mm. So it's just an interesting experience. And that is what differentiates us. Now it's not just names. Of course, there are all these other things that we really study about um, yeah. that we can talk about at some point, but really starting to see that citizen yoga is just an excuse for a community. And then we just happen to teach really badass yoga. Yeah. You know? Totally. Cool. I do. Yeah. Um, so what would you say to the listener right now who, who for whatever reason is is resisting coming to a yoga class, not just in, in citizen, obviously we want them to come to citizen, but what do you say to the listeners who are just, you know, reluctant to that? Mm. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually put myself in uncomfortable situations. I've done this to like actually train myself out of my own discomfort. Yeah. Um, and uh, I went to a rock climbing gym. This is a really good example. I went to a rock climbing gym in New York. Yeah. Brooklyn Boulders. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool place. Yeah. I did the same thing with trying to get out of my comfort zone. I went to Planet Rock really? in Madison Heights. Oh my, God, like, that's my sister calls me. She's like, you're going rock climbing, but you're scared of heights. And I said, yeah, exactly. I am too. Yeah. Oh my God. That's yeah. amazing. So Adam and I went, mm-hmm. Adam's my husband. Adam and I went, um, he boulders, which is like, I don't even understand. Like my arms cannot handle that, but I tried. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. I walked in and they gave me, um, I really like the place. So don't <laughs> take it like you shouldn't go there. You should go there. It's really great. But nobody showed me around. I got no tour. I felt super uncomfortable. And I timed how long it took me to get comfortable. Mm -hmm. And like, to me, that is part of what we do really well at Citizen. Like if you're a person that's really nervous, um, I try to, I call it disarming discomfort. 
mm-hmm. as fast as possible. And usually you do that by assigning a task to somebody because the moment they have something to do within the culture, they immediately feel a part of the culture. Right. Important. Important. Mm-hmm. Like I have a job. I have a purpose, even in the experience of signing in. Yeah. Like instead of it's just like, oh, welcome. It's like sign in here, go over there come right back to me and I'm going to take care of you. Right. Like, so you're literally holding people's hands and the fear is, is not just about the practice. The fear is actually, at least what I've heard is like stepping into the culture. And I totally get that, Mm -hmm. that there is a yoga culture and, um, you have to work hard. Citizen works really hard to be body diverse, Mm -hmm. um, racially diverse, all different ages, genders, but that takes a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. Because that also takes really good teaching. You have to know how to help every single person based on their history. Right. It's not just all yoga fits all people. Yeah. It doesn't. And, and, and your classes and all all of the citizen teachers are really great at this. But giving uh, options, um, I guess like a lot of times it's worded as like, you don't have to follow me down this road. You know, you're yeah. perfectly good where you are in this pose. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like tools such as, you know, props like blocks and bolsters and straps and blankets. Um, And like for me personally, I resisted using those for so long because I thought that it was making me lesser or that it was giving me an easier path. Um, And then I've learned recently, especially that it's not, it's, it's just making things that weren't accessible, more accessible. Yeah. And, or intensifying. Yeah. You know, a lot of, um, you know, it's sort of like, uh, it's a, it's a step stool to getting to where you actually need to be, but mm-hmm. that doesn't make it less like where you are is not less than all of a sudden you're actually at the exact same height that you should have been at, but you couldn't actually stand up. Mm-hmm. And so figuring out how to use it in that way. But I think people who are very nervous, rightfully so, right? You're putting your body. Mm-hmm. It would be silly if I said you shouldn't be nervous. Now you shouldn't be nervous because, um, there's anything to fear just, that's a natural experience. Mm-hmm. Like let yourself be like that and know that if you go to the right place, they'll embrace you and they'll teach you how to be comfortable in this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to grow from it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I went, did skiing lessons. You didn't even speak English. You just said short turn spritz. That was like, <laughs> this, that was the extent of my lesson. We were in Switzerland. What does that even mean? Short term, exactly. Short yeah. turn spritz. Like, I was like, okay. There it's, for some reason, it just reminds me of the South Park episode where he keeps saying pizza, pizza, French fries, pizza, French fries. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. And then he would say pizza, spaghetti, pizza, spaghetti. <laughs> and that was the extent of my lesson. Uh-huh. Like there was nothing else that he could tell me. Right. It was, um, it was really beautiful. He was this farmer that um, worked in this small town in Switzerland, Brunwald. Mm-hmm. And he... Literally, that was that was my lesson. Long turn, no spritz. Short turn, spritz. <laughs> I was like, here I go, down the mountain. But, you know, embracing that and realizing that it really doesn't take you long to get comfortable with something if you're in a good studio with good teaching. Mm-hmm. Okay, who who's Swamiji? And, and how has his influence played a part in your practice? Oh, so... Swamiji. Swamiji is an, um, Swami is a term for a teacher. Right. That's not the exact translation, of course, but it's a term for a teacher. Um, G is a way to show or formalize respect for an elder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my teacher is very affectionately called Swamiji. His last name is Parthasarthi. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I was introduced to him by another local yoga studio in Michigan mm. and um, found this knowledge at a point in my life where I was dealing with a lot of personal and emotional pain mm-hmm. and wanted not an escape. I don't think it was an escape. I wanted an answer to suffering that nobody was giving me. So I, I think in some other stuff that I've, um, some other podcasts that I've been on, I sort of talked about, you know, going into the energy healing world, to the mediumship world, trying to find a value for myself really is what I was doing. Seeking answers. Yeah, seeking answers, but mm-hmm. also like, oh, if I'm a medium, then I have a value and a place in this world that's mm-hmm. higher or something strange that Maybe I was more thinking. purposeful. Yeah, more mm-hmm. purposeful, but also like, I think value is the right term for it. Like we all at different points in our life feel like we are more valuable or less valuable. And in my twenties I felt not very valuable at all. And, um, I found this knowledge and it made a lot of sense. It's called Vedanta. Um, and it's also very traditional and it's very sometimes terse and very straightforward. Mm -hmm. And if you know me, I'm pretty straightforward. I can't help but be direct. And it was not windy. And I went there not really knowing him. Mm-hmm. I read some of the books, but it was more that feeling. We talked about that. There is a real deep feeling when you're in on the right path. Um, you'll know. And there was no real logic as to why I made this decision. It was insane, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody thought I was insane. They all thought I was joining a cult. Um, I was moving to India for three years, and you're hmm. not allowed to come home. Right. So imagine my parents and my friends thinking I was insane, which I was insane maybe. Um, but sometimes you need to be a little insane to do good things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Opening my company was insane. We can talk about that at some point. Like I was totally insane. Right. Um, but I knew that it was the right thing. I was very convicted and it was, I, but I didn't go with any motive, Mm -hmm. a a motive to create something out of Vedanta. That was not my motive. My motive was I need to help myself. I need to understand the world. Why is there so much pain? Why am I experiencing so much pain personally? And um, so you had questions to be answered, but you weren't necessarily seeking an exchange or or like anything from it. You know, it was more so like just trying to find a a clear path. Yeah, Mm -hmm. a clear path. I'm sure there was a little escapism because my sister had just passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe there was a little bit of that. I couldn't handle my family at all. But once I got there, I understood so much more clearly that you ha- you can only stay there if you're very committed mm-hmm. to being there. You it's were like one of the only Westerners there, right? Yeah, there were a few of us. Um, myself and my, um, I'm actually starting a study group with um, a few of us. We call mm-hmm. ourselves the outliers because um, we don't we don't live in the academy mm-hmm. and we don't really know how to like live in the world fully because we <laughs> know way too much philosophy to our, for our own good at this point now. Yeah. And um, the world can seem very insane. Yeah. And so he, my friend is Glenn. He um, is from New Zealand. And then my other really close friend, but she's um, from South Africa, Arusha. And um, there was another guy who actually recently passed away, Justin, who is from here as well. And um, basically it was myself, Justin, and this other woman, and mm-hmm. the rest were Indians primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but Swamiji's in his 90s and he is a thinker 
any digested, very cryptic, um, very traditional knowledge and transformed it into knowledge that you can make practical. And that's why I loved it. It took things that didn't seem so practical and he turned it into practical knowledge and it teaches you how to live a better life, not just like from a transcendental perspective, but from a terrestrial perspective. Mm-hmm. So leading up to your, your, your stay in India, you faced some pretty difficult moments. Yeah. You were in Australia traveling, mm-hmm. um, trying to probably find yourself by traveling, you know, as a lot of young people do. And mm-hmm. I know that like your family encouraged you to solo travel, um, mm-hmm. which is a really fortunate thing to be able to do. And on these travels, you you get a call that, that your sister committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And so you had to come home and, and face that. What 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 kind of uh, the grief surrounding that, like how, how do you, how did you not crumble in that situation? So um, I think we did. <laughs> yeah. Um, suicide is, I believe now, the 10th leading cause of death in the country. Mm. Um, it might be in the world, but I think this is a New York Times article I read last week. Um, it's a huge epidemic. I, I would say that my sister's was not the epidemic that we're seeing right now. My sister's death was um, due to an abusive marriage mm-hmm. and being bipolar and the combination of the two are clearly lethal. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think I know that I, I don't, I wasn't actually living at that point in my life. I actually have zero memories really. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no time recollection from the time I moved home from Australia to really the time I left for India. It's almost like this blackout stage in my life. And if anybody's been through a lot of trauma, they'll know that. Um, I had faced some loss in college. My best friend had passed away in college. And that was really a wake up call to, life. Like you don't realize in in youth that life will end, Mm -hmm. even though you might know it. And some people do face loss much earlier, which is also very challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, And in my twenties is when it all sort of like hit. There were a lot of people sort of like this slew of people, but I think that there are two crippling ends of suicide. One is this um, never ending guilt that you could have helped. Um, Let's stick on that for just one second, because I know that there's a, kind of an anecdotal part of this where you missed a call from Maya, your sister. And Mm -hmm. I know that that probably manifested into a lot of forms of guilt in your life. Yep. Um, How did you cope with that? Um, Specifically the guilt. Yeah, I don't know if I... Well, now I coped with it with understanding and surrender and purpose. Mm -hmm. Now. Mm Mm-hmm. In that moment, um, you don't. Right. And I think that you face it and Mm -hmm. you realize that that will be the ache that you will live with forever. Mm -hmm. My mom will just, she'll tell you that it's just like this scar that exists in your your being because there's always, in everybody's death, in every death, in every moment of your life when something is dying— yeah, and it doesn't just have to be death. No. There can be a lot of guilt in other situations too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like the the process of movement and change in your life is just this process of life and death constantly. You just don't necessarily view it as life and death. And so there's lots of ways that we grieve about um, different aspects of our life. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that we necessarily deal with it. I did not deal with it very well. Um, I had a lot of 
definitely post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. around this. Um, and I don't know if I was fully functioning. Looking back, I had a massive amount of anxiety, um, very crippling anxiety and very bad coping skills. Mm-hmm. Even though it looked like from the outside that I had very good coping skills, I had extremely terrible coping what skills. What were your coping skills that looked good at the time? Um, I mean, I sort of threw myself into what I would call my pseudo-spiritual life. Mm-hmm. You know, the energy healing. And I'm not saying that those are pseudo-spiritual. Those were pseudo-spiritual for me personally. And I'm not saying that they are for other people. Um, I like would put my effort and energy into other people being the answer to my suffering. So if I was in a good relationship, the way I was in relationships, romantic relationships was not very healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was extremely afraid of losing people. And um, those were sort of my my coping skills around relationships and filling it with friends and not being able to be alone. And these were all my coping skills that didn't necessarily really help me. It was like an overcompensation for what mm-hmm. you were lacking at the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also not really knowing um, when something like this occurs in your family. What's interesting is um, in the beginning, you sort of turn to your family, but then you realize that your family is completely broken. And then you don't really know who to turn to in that in that next stage. Because your my friends were there and everybody was surrounding me, but... Um, at some point, everybody's life moves on. And I think that everybody who loses somebody very significant to them will have this moment. And it's sort of this spiritual experience of self-sufficiency. Now looking back is how self-sufficient can you make yourself? Um, and that to me is what Vedanta taught me. Mm. Um, I'm not saying I learned that lesson just by being at the Academy. Mm -hmm. I learned that lesson through citizen yoga. Mm. I learned that lesson through my husband but I was armed with the tools. So I'm going to tell you a little story Yeah, that I was mentioning. Um, a friend of mine uh, who was at the academy with Marusha, um, I was just on the phone with her. And um, just recently, her she told me that her brother had passed away from suicide. Mm. Young kid. Now her and I were at the academy together, so she knows the story of Maya. And... Um, her other brother was at the academy with us and um, he was a really lovely guy. And he sort of used to goof off and he was very funny and like be in the kitchen and cooking and then, you know, taking food. And, you know, we had like very strict meal times and mm-hmm. he's just messing around all the time. And um, he said his reflection of all of his time in India was not, he's like, you know, I didn't really understand why I was there or what I was doing. But now I understand that all the knowledge that I learned has prepared me for this moment in my life when his brother died. And so I think sometimes you don't, acquiring knowledge doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're fixed. I think that that's a misinterpretation of your spiritual growth. That just because all of a sudden you learned a concept of, oh, well, selfishness, you know, makes me unhappy. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you can't change that. That's not an instant change. You have to, you've created inertia in a specific direction. Mm -hmm. And now you have to move yourself in a different direction. And that takes a lot of time. So the ability for you to, for me to cope didn't really come in until much, much later, even after I had left the academy. Mm -hmm. I didn't move home from India. I'm like, oh, I'm saved. 
Right. It was actually terrible when I moved home. It was the worst years of my life, really. Yeah. I thought like the worst years were after my sister passed away, but actually the, the knowing of the knowledge, but not being able to integrate it, no community because there was no yoga community for me to integrate with, no family because my family mm-hmm. was still grieving, no real friends because my friends all moved away. That was that, that deep, dark moment of life that I had. And it wasn't near my sister's death. It was after. And at the same time, the nearly three years you're in India are essentially like living under a rock. And, yep. and you, you, you miss the advancement of cell phones and smartphones yep. and social media. So you get back and everyone's buried in their phone screen. I mean, we were laughing. I was on the phone with my friend Glenn, who was at the academy with me. And this was actually, this is my favorite story. We're in the gym at the academy. And during... Um, one week out of the whole year, you get free internet because all these people come and visit and like you can have internet the whole time. You couldn't mm-hmm. have internet there. You had to mm-hmm. go to the city and go to an internet cafe and write your friends and neighbors, hey, I'm alive, mm-hmm. basically. <laughs> and um, actually when my best friend got engaged, she had written me, I got her email and I wanted to write her like this really thoughtful response. So then I went back to the academy and then I was like going the next day and then there was an outbreak of bird flu that shut down all the trains for like five days. Uh-huh. And I got back finally six days later to the internet cafe. She's like, hey, I told you I was engaged. You didn't even respond. I was like, I've been trying. She took it I was personally. Like, yeah, I was yeah. like, oh shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but that's like the experience of how long it took for us to communicate mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. And that's not even that long ago. Right. So it was just like, it's very, very interesting. Anyway, so my friend and I are having this like experience and I'm my computer and I'm like, hey, do you want to check your email really fast? I was just telling him this today or yesterday. And he's like, how would I check my email? I'm like, what do you mean? Just look on look on uh, the computer. He's like, how how is it connected? I'm like, it's wireless. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, there, he's like, there's no wire to connect to your computer for internet? I'm like, no, where have you been? He's like, I've been living here. Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> he had already been living there for four years. He had no idea about wireless oh internet. Wow. He was like, his mind was blown. Yeah. He literally just kept looking around my computer like, what's happening? Like like the scene in Zoolander. It was amazing. Like the, the files are inside the computer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's, um, yes, that there was a huge impact of social media and phones and time. And when kind of analyzing that, you know, and that story of, of coming home, and that advancement, it made me think about, you know, I don't think that we had to necessarily spend four years or three years in India to um, feel that shift. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now, you know, um, we often, uh, you know, compare ourselves through social media. We often mm-hmm. are, you know, using that as like a an escape and it's easy probably to... Um, you know, become immersed in that and in and, and like this artificial digital world. And, you know, it's probably, it's hard for people who are here and saw this transition happening too, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, it's hard to f- not fall into that trap, I'd say. People, mm, it's a huge topic right now. Um, we don't really know the effects of what actually is going to end. Um, I sort of envision this like we're on this beach and it's so beautiful, which is very relevant to where we just were. We were just in Tulum. Mm-hmm. We're on this beach and it's magnificent. And you're staring at your phone because you just took a picture of the beach, but you're like not even in the present moment. And there's a humongous tsunami coming your direction. And you're so involved in your photo and editing it that you don't even realize 
that this huge tsunami wave is coming. And to me, that's part of this experience. Like, that's how I feel. I'm not saying that that's everybody's experience. That's how I feel like, hey, look up. Shaking him like, you there's, gotta run, man. Yeah, there's yeah. something that's coming that we are not realizing is impacting not just our social experience, but our personal life experience. Mm-hmm. Like That the present moment, it's not even fading. It doesn't even exist. Mm. And that level of anxiety, see- Anxiety is the mind moving past and future. So I like to think of the mind like sandpaper. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sandpaper moving gently across this wood table is sort of fine. You know, if sandpaper stops, it's much better, but okay, it can move side to side. But think about what's happening when you're looking at all these different images. You're looking at some, one, you're looking at somebody's past, which is even more interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and then you're like, the present moment. it's not it's even the present like- moment. The past. It's yeah. the past. Yeah. And then you're also thinking about what am I going to post next? And then your mind starts moving back and forth and you're scrolling. So the mind is being fed all this information that it doesn't even really want. I mean, it does want, which is interesting, but it doesn't really want, excuse me. And so as the sandpaper moves, it's creating friction. And all that friction is, is your anxiety. And that's the best way that I've described the agitation of the mind is that the more it moves past and future, it just, it's creating this incessant agitation, which for young people, that is their reality. That is our reality. And we, we just live with that agitation like constantly. You don't even realize. Right. You don't realize. Um, it's such a complex topic, really. And it's something that I'm super passionate about because you understand that if from a philosophical perspective, the world is an illusion. Okay. That is the crux of uh, Vedic philosophy. Mm -hmm. The world is an illusion. They call it Maya, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is it's, it's not real and it's not, it's not real and it's not unreal. Okay. It's not unreal because it exists for you right now, but it's not real because it's transient. You following that? Totally. Okay, I have and, it right here in my okay, notebook. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. And it's this interesting illusion of as a waker right now, we say we're having a podcast. How interesting. We're like, this is podcast time. This is real. I am Casey. You are Harrison. You are Clay. How interesting. And then you go to bed at night and you become dreamer. I don't remember what my dream was last night. Whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Let's just say... Last night I dreamt that I was back in Switzerland skiing with my funny instructor and he was yelling spritz the whole time, which just really means spray. Okay. Right? Spritz. Spray, spray the snow. Spray the snow. Okay. Right? I was not, I was trying really hard. And <laughs> in that dream, I am so clear that I am that skier moving side to side on the mountain and I might fall off, whatever it is. And I have all the same real experiences. And if you said to me in the dream, that is not real. I'm going to say to you, no, it, it, it is real. It's real right now because look, I'm on this mountain. And it's the same experience that this information, this knowledge is having with you. It's saying, I am suggesting that this waking experience is not as real as you think it is. So now you have, and then there's Tantra. Um, I'm not going to go deep into Tantra, but Tantra has the three malas. Um, actually, I won't go deep, but this idea of you have a film on your perception mm-hmm. and the film on your perception, which I like to think of it like a filter 
Mm-hmm. You just are viewing your whole world through this film that you believe to be real. Similarly, you think this seemingly illusion is real. And now, not only do you have this thing to work yourself out of, this dream state that's like really our waking state, but now you've created a second reality that's not a reality. You've created your own second identity that is not even you, which is even more interesting to think about. Is your Instagram personality you? Definitely not. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. 100%. I'll be the first to admit that. It's, I try really hard to make mine me. Yeah. And it really, but it's not me. Yeah. Because you don't know anything about what was happening the moment before, the moment after. You don't know if we were in a good mood or bad mood. I would say like our Tulum pictures were so authentic, actually. That's why people were like, oh my God, it looked like that. I was like, it was like that. Yeah. Sometimes it really is. Sometimes it is. Yeah. But now you have to work your way out of both identities. So who are you? That is so complex. Now you don't even realize that you, if I say to you, your, your identity in social media is an illusion and you say, no, it's not. That's me. I feel the same as like somebody saying to me, Casey, this is an illusion. You're not, you're not Casey. And I'm like, I am, I'm having a real experience as me. Mm -hmm. And so we have put ourselves into this extreme warped confusion and I find it fascinating. I, I'm not judging it. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Sometimes scary. It scares me a it's little. Very scary. It scares me personally. But I'm not, I'm not saying that somebody who's using it, I have to use it as well. I'm not trying to be critical. I assess things because I like to think about things in this way. But it scares me, truly. There's I've, a way to have a healthy relationship with it as well. Yeah. Yeah. What is your? What, what, what do you think is the answer there? I just gave you illusion theory. I probably should have gone a little lighter. No, no, I like that. I I really like the the philosophy we're getting into. Um, What was your question? Sorry. So, you know, knowing all of this, you know, what what can we do to combat that? Mm. Oh, God. I don't know. Um, There are some things that actually um, my husband taught me because I'm so focused on citizen yoga that sometimes I overuse it. Not, I don't overuse it in my personal life. I overuse it for citizen because I like love it so much and I want it, I want people to love it and like experience it and feel the love, Mm -hmm. you know, that it can bring in your life. And um, I think one tool that I used often, and actually I've gotten away from it. So maybe this is a good sign for myself is after I post, I log out. Mm. So that anytime my unconscious impulsive mind clicks it has nothing to see. Right. Right. And then it's like, oh my God, why am I touching that? So that, that was a tool that I created a little while ago that actually I've stopped using. So I should probably start using it again. Yeah. It's a good tool. Mm-hmm. What I, I, I would like put my Instagram icon into like a folder and then change it like every week. So I don't have like the habitual oh, you know, muscle memory of going to the exact place on my home screen and picking it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's but I think logging out would and that would probably be even better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another, um, I'll give you my three sleeping tips that yeah. I was given. I have definitely I was, a note on the light alarm clock. In I was, here. I was yeah. gifted these. Um, these are my three sleeping tips. So you better listen, whoever <laughs> you are. Tip one, use a light alarm clock. Mm-hmm. If you go on wire cutter, um, I actually use Adams from, he had one from high school. Um, 
You, you described re- it as would, like a rocket ship. Yeah, it looks sort of like the 70s. Like It literally looks like it's a 70s lamp, and it's huge, and it sits next to our bed. Yeah. And it also makes noise because our room is actually a little bright. So um, you can hear like it makes bird sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I don't. I didn't realize until I started traveling after I started using it how stressful it is to wake up to so much intense noise mm-hmm. that your um your fight or flight kicks in. Now when I travel, it's so jarring to me that I have to wake up to my phone and not my light alarm clock. So that's tip one. Tip two, Kindle. Mm-hmm. Now I know all of the reasons that you're going to tell me you're not going to get a Kindle and the reason I like the feel of a book. Excellent. You should use them during the day. I... I I don't like to read at night or I have my iPad. Your mm-hmm. iPad has totally different light. Um, a Kindle is a wonderful experience. Um, I use it. I have like a Kindle prop, which is really just like another pillow. And I set myself up and I used to have really bad sleep anxiety after my sister passed away. Mm-hmm. I couldn't sleep for many years. Um, it was really, really terrible. And I would wake up all the time in the middle of the night and I would turn on the television Um And sometimes if I'm really stressed out, actually, I still have to do that. Like if I get into a heightened state, I need something louder than my mind because that's Mm -hmm. sort of what we need, right? A little bit of stimulus to kind of make it a louder noise than the stimulus in our head already. Exactly. So something like that. Yeah. Um, So you need a Kindle, but I recommend light reading, like something that's interesting to you that keeps your attention, not something like a textbook. Like I don't read yoga information before I'm going to bed. And then my last... um, It's not mine. It's actually Adam's. Last recommendation, um, phone out of the bedroom. Mm -hmm. No compromise. Zero. We share the story about when Adam came home from from a trip in Europe. (laughs) Yeah. So Adam Adam came home. um, He's going to be like, why are you talking about me on the podcast? Anyway, um, (laughs) my husband came home from this trip. He actually went um, to hang out with Wim Hof. Mm -hmm. um, Iceman. Iceman. His breathing camp in Poland. And I'm going to have to have Adam on here just to tell his story about uh, Iceman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You should. Yeah. So um, our rule is no phones in the bedroom. And I didn't really understand the impact until now. Um, even if I have my phone, like today I was going to rest a little bit because I had woken up, woken up really, really early. And Adam was at home. And I was like, can you bring me my phone? He was like, yeah, but you're not going to rest. So you better pull it out of the room if you think you're going to take a nap. Now, we don't even realize it because people will say to me like, oh, well, my phone's on airplane mode, so it doesn't matter. My phone's next to my bed. I put it across the room. All these, it's it's not charged. I don't care. Your phone represents world. You have an entire universe that lives in your phone. And you're saying, I'm not going to be distracted by the entire universe. Of course you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Obviously. So, um, so that's like, those are our three and it really helps my quality of sleep. I've told this to our teacher training classes um, and they have helped, this has helped them as well. At mm-hmm. least some of them who have like implemented these tools. Um, so Adam went to Wim Hof. He was getting home at like midnight or 1am and um, I had my phone next to me just in case like, well, what if he forgot his key to get into the building or something happened and he needed me, mm-hmm. which is very rare for me to sleep now with my phone near me. And um We hadn't seen each other in like eight days. Mm -hmm. And again, we lived apart for three years. So we're used to space, but now we're sort of not used to space. So it was sort of exciting. He was coming home, right? Missing the heck out of him. Exactly. So I was like super pumped. He's coming home, ready, see you. And he walks in. He doesn't even say hi. He doesn't say (laughs) anything. He walks next to the bed and he goes, violation. Why is your phone in the bedroom? (laughs) I'm like, that's it? He picked up the phone. He didn't even hug me, kiss me, nothing. He picked up the phone and walked it out of the bedroom and walked back in and, and then said hello. 
That's how serious he is actually about this. And the impact that it's had on my sleep life has been amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I didn't, I wouldn't, you don't realize the impact that something has on you until you take it away. Mm-hmm. And that's like our, literally our life lesson, right? We have no appreciation for something when it's with us and we only miss things when they're gone. And it's such a complex relationship on the flip side. You don't realize how something's negatively affecting you totally. until you remove that thing. And then you have the perspective because space is like, it's your ultimate friend. It's your ultimate en- enemy to the mind because the mind doesn't like space between you and anything. Mm-hmm. Cause the mind is afraid of itself. The mind feels like there's a void inside of you that exists. But actually the truth is, is that it's just this illusion of a, a void and the courage, the spiritual courage to step in and be alone and present, present mm-hmm. and letting things have space is it, it'll change your whole life. Mm-hmm. Something that I read um, regarding mindfulness and being present um, that's really stuck with me kind of uh, goes in line with eating habits mm. and uh, specifically the story about an orange. And if, you know, you, you, there's a man who was eating an orange and he's speaking to another man who's a philosopher and uh, he's peeling this orange and he has an orange piece in his mouth and and you look down and he's already peeling off another piece of the orange before he's even chewing the mm. first piece he just put it in, in his mouth. And the man says, you know, why don't you finish the piece that's in your mouth before you even touch the other orange? And the, the man eating the orange didn't even notice what he was doing. Right. And so I think we fall into these tendencies that become, you know, maybe a habit that, that we, we don't know until it's gone how bad it really was. And so you don't really realize how good in oranges until you really spend time eating just that orange, just, you know, or even washing dishes, you know, like Mm -hmm. you're not going to, um, you're never going to love washing dishes, but you can feel a connection to washing dishes if that's all you're doing at that moment. And whatever you're going to do after washing dishes becomes that much more enjoyable because you were present while you were washing those dishes. And, and yes. And also it just has to go back to that friction of the mind, Mm -hmm. right? The mind isn't going past and future. So it really has nothing to do with the activity that you're participating in. Mm -hmm. It has to do with that you've trained the mind to not move so quickly, which alleviates the agitation that that you're internally experiencing at all periods of time. And and that's really what it is. It's the mind is a bundle of desire. Basic body, mind, and intellect. You have a body. It moves from one experience to another. It's your vehicle. Mm -hmm. You have a mind and your mind is impulsive. It's like a child. It has emotion. It is the house of your emotion. It's also the house of your ego. Mm -hmm. Your ego expresses itself in three distinct ways. I alone exist. I am the doer. I am supreme. So your your mind is your sense of I-ness. It's also beautiful. It's nothing's wrong with your mind. Well, it is wrong with your mind right now, but the mind inherently in its own essence is not bad. It's when it's not being watched, helped, cultivated into a direction that's more uplifted. That's when the mind becomes really negative. And so then you have an intellect and the intellect is the thing that you and I were talking about and we talk about all the time. And it's a spiritual concept. It's also a practical concept of having an intellect, which is not intelligence. And your intellect is the part of your subtle body. It's a different type of thinking almost mm-hmm. where you distinguish, decipher, direct, and you have boundary. And you can say, I've had enough. 
And so... Is that where like reasoning comes from? And, that's and reasoning. Rationalization even? Yep. And they, mm-hmm. they do it within brain science. There's um, a book that I recommend called Mind Up Curriculum. Um, I was recommended, uh, I did a philosophy lecture somewhere and somebody had recommended it to me and it proves brain science with the concepts of mind and intellect. And that's um, what they're using to try and bring more mindfulness into like schools. the educational system. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to think about what the mind is doing, um, when the mind has a bundle of desire, the more desires you have, the more agitated you are because the more you're propelled into the world. And then the difficulty is, is that every single sense object has like, a, it's almost like a joy life, right? Mm-hmm. It's like this sense object has a life of joy that lasts 10 minutes. Right. You know? What you taught me on retreat is that there's no inherent joy in any object though. Correct. Mm-hmm. So we just assign it to the object. Yes. And that puts so much fake importance on it. Yes. We become so attached, which obviously attachments lead to misery. That's hard. That's a big statement, but yes. Mm-hmm. It's a good statement, but yes. Mm-hmm. It's... um. See, your joy, you can derive from anything because your joy is just your perspective. Mm -hmm. That's very weird. But you can derive joy from a rainy day that somebody actually hates because you've changed your perspective on what the rain is doing. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about what the mind is actually, the tendency of the mind is it can't say, I've had enough. Thank you so much. And so if your mind runs rampant like a child, you know, a child runs through your house. Imagine your child in your pantry. That's a good way to think about it. Your child in your pantry is not going to be picking like the quinoa Mm-mm. to eat. They right? might be ripping it open and spilling it all yeah, over the floor exactly. to make a mess. But or see what it, it is right, or whatever, right. you know, and the, the length of time that you are interested in each item in the pantry, right, is the length of time that you're interested pretty much in all of your different desires. And the more you're drawn into the world and the more you truly genuinely believe that your happiness exists in all these various objects, you can imagine that you're like going through these like little spurts of joy. And every time you exhaust the joy from one thing, you're like, oh, it's it's not there anymore. Let me find something else. Mm. And that is part of the agitation of the mind. The mind is constantly seeking what's next, what's next, what's next. And that's, that's part of what... Um, that's where social media comes in. Then you mm-hmm. draw it all the way back. That every person in your life represents a desire. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? Like you scroll and somebody's at a party. That's a desire. Oh, I want to be at that party. I want to be engaged. I want to have a baby. I want to look like that. You are, it's like a catalog, a massive catalog of desire that you're entertaining your very untrained intellect and mind to look through all the time. And that's part of that agitation. And so part of what we're trying to do, I'm trying to do consciously is build that part of my subtle body that says, I can say I've had enough. I can derive purpose because the mind is obsessed with its I-ness mm-hmm. and the intellect can direct its I-ness outward. It can say, Yes, you can have your I-ness while you give to other people. And what you'll actually find is your your sense of self will grow because you're giving more, not because you're taking more. And, and there's the, your purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's where you start to thread your purpose into every single action, every single thought, every single emotion. And you have said that that a loss of purpose is a loss of life. Mm. So um, do you do you think it's like, 
going back somewhat to the trauma that you were you were living through, um, do you think that your purpose became increasingly evident through that trauma? Yeah. I mean, well, not right away. I, I don't I sort of like what I was saying to my close friend Arusha. Arusha, I hope you don't mind I'm putting this publicly. <laughs> um you know, when you first experience something so traumatic, you can't expect yourself to create something so beautiful out of it. You sort of just have to like handle it as it is and not make it what it isn't. And we're so impatient in our own process. Like we want the thing that we dislike or we're uncomfortable about to transform into something beautiful instantly, like your photo. Mm -hmm. And that's not how our, our purpose unfolds. Our purpose unfolds with some grit you know, it's um, like a big jigsaw puzzle and we don't have all the pieces to it yet, but yes. we have to just not put, you know, we can't ever call the puzzle complete because we know there's more pieces to come. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and, and also you're on a path to developing yourself. And so, um, there's a quote by William Cowper. It's a poem that Swamiji uses a lot. And it says the end portion, um, is, um, those who truth and wisdom lead can gather honey from a weed. And, and that's a huge part of it. Like truth and wisdom, wisdom is digested knowledge. It's not like, oh, I read this book now. I know it. Wisdom is what you live. It's assimilated information in your soul. And that doesn't happen overnight. I mean, I've been studying Vedanta for 10 years now. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not by any means evolved. Right. I like mean, my meditation practice sometimes just literally is just be sitting there just like, you know, maybe meditating sometimes, but uh, sometimes it's just me trying so hard to meditate yeah. and it's just me sitting there, you know? Yes. And it's not meditating at that point. Right. And, and you can't, well, yes, exactly. And you sort of just have to be okay with that. Right. The like, more it, you can recognize that probably the more you can improve when it is an effective meditation or, or so. And I think meditation is not necessarily the best example because if you're sitting in you're practicing. with your breath and you're mm -hmm. practicing, but you know, um, there is an, well, an effectiveness to it. I can give you a, uh, like I give this example to teacher trainees, mm -hmm. you know, people come out of training and they're like, I want to be, I want to be a teacher like you, mm -hmm. not me, just any, you, any general you, mm -hmm. general you, any teacher without seeing all the cause and effect that has gone into this teacher becoming the teacher and the impatience of, of cultivating wisdom around teaching. And that just takes mistakes and time and your ability to sacrifice your sense of I. The sacrifice of I is that you're not gonna be perfect when you walk out of an experience that gives you lots of information. You have to, the spiritual path is the annihilation of I mm. the whole way through. Because you're, you're going, spiritually, what you're saying in your purpose is the I is less important than the we. And this is like the whole thing that I'm working on all summer. The I is less important than the we. That's spiritual. Why? Mm -hmm. Because the I will always convince you that it, that it needs to survive. The I does everything it can to survive. It says, I, you are not full. Hurry up. Go out there. You're not full. You're empty. Mm -hmm. You can't sit with me. Collect more clothes, collect more things. Everything. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Sense objects. Yes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's exactly right. It just likes to collect more, more stuff. Mm -hmm. But actually spiritually what you're doing is the more you find purpose and you thread that bigger sense of self out there, that collective thinking, 
the it's not that the eye disappears. It just means that the eye is less focused on. And that is a huge part of self-healing. Your, your anxiety is less because you're less motivated in every action. And the more motives you have in every single action, the more agitated you become. Why? Every single time you interact with somebody, just imagine. I come to this podcast. I have no motive. I don't, mm-hmm. I have no idea if people are going to like listening to it or not. I'm not, I'm very relaxed. But if I came to this podcast, like, okay, Harrison's podcast, this is going to be the thing that spreads citizen yoga across the planet. Right. Okay. And then the whole podcast, I'm worried. Well, am I saying the right thing? Is it, am I doing a good job? I want to make sure that I'm saying everything about citizen yoga that should be said about citizen yoga. And then I've become crippled by my anxiety. And then the experience is less than. Mm-hmm. And so that's a huge part of it is that all of our motivating factors, you teach a yoga class, you want the class to be good. That's a motivation. You don't realize that. But part of what we're trying to do spiritually is, is actually surrender that sense of I and go into that deeper sense of we purpose. And that doesn't happen right away. You have to go back to the wisdom. It's, it's truth and wisdom. Truth is that which exists at all periods of time relatively there's relative truth and there's absolute truth. So that's not really fair, but, and wisdom. And then at any point in your life, you can start to gather meaning from any experience. You can be, you can love anything. You can love any being. And your, your actions are, are driven not by what you're going to get out of it, but, but by feeling good, the, the feeling you get for, for doing what you love. Yes, but even that is complicated because you this is why they this is why giving is so complicated. Yeah. Because even then it's still a higher experience to give to feel good because you're still giving. Right. But even giving to feel good is then in its essence and its in definition is not giving. Because it's still transactional. I'm not transactional, saying right. I'm not saying like, okay, come on, that's like an ideal and that's not even fair to like hold the ourselves. Coffee I give you for yes. coming on this podcast. Obviously you're in no situation would you come on this podcast just for the bag of coffee. Yeah, it's just because. Yeah. But it, it's I, I have an example okay. today that, that stands out. Great. Um there's this artist cause. He's a pretty big artist. Um and he's coming to Detroit and he's working with MOCAD, which is a really great museum of contemporary art of Detroit. And, um, his, his art is sought after, you know, if he puts a release up, it's gone in seconds. And today he did a release for people to, if you donated to MOCAD's program of, of charity, like they, they send kids to art camp. And so if you donated a thousand dollars to their charity, you could get a cause print and they were gone very quick. And, Mm. um, reading through some of these comments from people who, were either really upset that they didn't get a chance to get one of the limited prints but donated or that donated last week before they announced that th- these prints were going to be given away. I mean, it really made me a little bit ashamed uh, yeah. to be a human. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's a sad thing to see. It's like, you know, uh, it's almost like it, had they known that there would be a print available for them, they would have waited to donate, you know? Yeah, but can you can can it, can any of us see it? See, this is like the thing that we are working on on retreat. You know, there are parts of you that you know about. There's parts of you that you don't know about. And then there's there's your unknown unknown. Mm-hmm. And that person has no idea about the perspective. They, they, don't, they can't see your perspective of what is occurring. They can only see 
their action and their rightness. And so part, part of our whole idea with the, the mind and the intellect is really to, I mean, going back to this idea of you're spiritually developing just so that you develop a perspective and a purpose, and the purpose doesn't always arrive easily. When my sister passed away, I had no idea that I would be dedicating literally my life to her life. And, and that I didn't do citizen yoga to get some, I mean, sure. I wanted a community. That's actually why I created citizen yoga. I had no idea citizen would be successful in the way that it is. Mm -hmm. I have no guarantee that citizen will be successful next year. Mm -hmm. But what I do know is that I didn't come to that mission or purpose easily. That took me a long time. And so if you, if you expect to learn something and then derive purpose immediately, you're going to be disappointed because it takes a while for you to see the whole picture. And I still haven't even seen the whole picture of my life. Yeah. I have no idea. There's no way to possibly see right. the whole picture. I mean, or right now at least. Right. So and I did not know is sort of the answer to your question. I did not know that from something so tragic, I would derive something so positive. Mm. That was a decision that I made much later in the healing process. Mm -hmm. So let's touch a little bit about entrepreneurship, just because I think that you have some amazing skills there that, that, <laughs> that honestly have you mean been, insanity. It's, it's an inspirational you know, uh, model, I think. Um, you opened the first Citizen Yoga in Royal Oak in 2013. Um, what were some of the first hurdles you had to jump over just to get that studio kind of going? Um, I needed to learn what an LLC was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had no idea what an LLC was. So I had this guy help me and draw, draw it for me because I was like, I don't really get it. Uh -huh. um, that was my, that was hurdle one. Um, learning construction. I had never run a construction project. I still don't think I actually ran a construction project that time. Mm -hmm. um, but learning construction was really challenging for me because um, it's very intimidating to know what choices to make. And that, that sidetrack, sorry, but that kind of goes back to the whole, you know, uh, I have a note here under yeah. under the, the chitta that we were talking about. Yeah. And, and it's like, the more you know, the less you know. Yeah. And I think it's like, you may have felt in opening your first studio that you're learning all this about construction. And then, and then fast forward, you know, to last year when you're opening the Cleveland studio, which is a complete new build. The first time you go to Cleveland, it's literally a lot of yeah. dirt. You know, yeah, and so you probably it puts into perspective what can you know what what how much more you had to learn. Well, right? well, sort of. So yes, yes and no. Cleveland was interesting because um, I had never done something from afar, mm. and that was really strange to manage a project from so far away. But realizing that I had so much that I needed to still do in Detroit, so that was my like unknown unknown. All of the projects were all completely new construction. Oh. Every project. Wow. So Royal Oak was new construction. Detroit was new construction. Bloomfield is new construction. I, yeah, I'm like, actually, that makes sense. I don't now. actually yeah. need to do that again. I think I should just <laughs> find a place. I think I should just like make it less difficult. Um, clearly, I'm not into that. <laughs> so I did manage completely new construction. But I think that the thing that was on my side, maybe that's the best way to present this, is I was so ignorant 
of everything and failure. Like I just knew that I would work my teeth off mm-hmm. to make citizens work. But I also knew that I stood for something really beautiful and I believed in that. And that is what drove me to be a crazy person. Mm-hmm. And I mean that very lovingly to myself. Um, I had a purpose. I had a vision. I knew an industry very well. This was not an, a foreign industry. I wasn't like trying to get into the food industry. Because I mean, like you said, your your uncle previously was, well, well no, he didn't own a, a yoga studio, but no. he practiced yoga. You were surrounded by it for so long. My whole life. Yeah, I've yeah. seen every studio. I've seen every mistake mm-hmm. in studios. I've seen broken studios. I've seen busy studios. I've mm-hmm. seen so many different studios. And I knew, I learned a lot about what I didn't want. And it really f- informed a lot of what I did want in Citizen Yoga. And then I had a mission to top it all off and a product of yoga that nobody was teaching, which was alignment. Mm. And so I would say that my, my hurdles were just knowing business period. But my, my blessing in that case was some of my ignorance and also just my natural drive to be passionate and create something that I believed full heartedly in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, you don't know what hard work is until you really believe in what you're working on. Totally. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's something that, uh, I never thought, you know, as a kid, I was, my dad would, my dad was worked a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad's family is very, my grandmother was 98 when she retired. My dad sold <laughs> his company, um, I think a year and a half ago now. Um, and my grandmother was still, it was her company. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad took it over and she was still working there at 98. Wow. And she was mad that they sold it because she no longer had a job. (laughs) It was like so nuts. Yeah. But as a child, my dad, I could not, in this way, I feel like maybe I was privileged in this way, but I did not have to, my dad wanted me to get a job, but I was like, I don't want to work for something that I don't believe in. So maybe that's like a theme in my life that, um, my dad, I would say he's very proud of me now, but I would, I was definitely maybe the lazy child. The black sheep. I was like the lazier child of yeah. my family, seemingly. Um, but you just weren't willing to conform to like what I just you knew wasn't going to make you happy. Yeah, I just couldn't like just do it because somebody was telling me to do it, which is <laughs> whatever, my own thing. But I didn't, I didn't have something to channel all this energy into. And Citizen has redefined hard work. Mm-hmm. It is tireless. It does not sleep. It did not stop. I had many sleepless nights when I first opened. I had risked so much. I it wasn't easy, um, but I drive so much joy. Like I remember, um, I made a scavenger hunt. I actually really I've been thinking about doing this again. <laughs> I used to do the weirdest. I mean, I still do the weirdest stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would like made this scavenger hunt for people to come in and find something. Like it seems so silly, but I derive so much joy from making people laugh and feel happy in that way when they come in the studio. Like one day I did like um, I call it like I it's like I'm the signing concierge. <laughs> That's yeah. what I call myself. Yeah. I'm like, I will sign you into class, and then you have to give me a hug. Now that could be a little creepy if. I wasn't me. Right. Um, but I call myself the signing concierge some evenings. Like yeah. if I have like really packed class and I'll 
manually sign every person in. Now it also helps me learn somebody's name who I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it's such a fun exercise and people feel so taken care of. And so I think that when you first launch a company, you'll never know the meaning of hard work until you really launch your own company in that way. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a mother, but I feel like it's like having a child. I would, I would say it would have to feel that way. I mean, this is your baby and, and then you birth more babies by yeah. opening up more studios. <laughs> exactly. almost, you know? um, but sticking on this like creativity um, and, and how you're always thinking outside the box from scavenger hunts to honestly, like the retreats themselves, you know, it's like, mm. it's uh, being on retreat last week in Tulum. Um, it was almost like, not that you, not that there was ever a moment where I didn't feel like you were present, but I, I know that it's always, how can we make this different? How can we improve it? What's next? Like not next as far as not enjoying right now, but what's next and you know, how is the next retreat? going to mm. always push the envelope. Um, you mean I'm trying to make us go to Alaska? Alaska, and yeah. And see bears? Yeah. But that's and, really just like my obsession with animals more than anything else. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really gung-ho for the crab legs. <laughs> okay, so, so I'm in. Uh, you can have my deposit. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so so s- s- the events that you've, you've embarked on surrounding yoga from mm-hmm. like the, you know, um, yoga in the big house at, mm, at U- University of Michigan's yeah. uh, football stadium to you know, yoga at Comerica Park where the Tigers play or yoga at Detroit Zoo. Um, you know, there's so many cool things you've done. What what drives you towards, you know, pushing that envelope and, and thinking outside the box? And it's such a different model than other yoga studios, but also just businesses in general. Um, it's really interesting. I always go back to why we're doing this. I always go back to our mission. Mm-hmm. So actually... I didn't run Comerica and I didn't run the zoo. Mm-hmm. Um, and last year was the first year that I personally put on the big house. And I was really nervous actually to do it. I didn't know what was going to happen. But I knew that if I was going to do a big event, it couldn't just be like, cool, we're at a yoga event. And the big house is, was my favorite event we've ever done mm-hmm. last year. I was so impacted by this. Um, it's all for suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. We had Eric Hippel come in. If you haven't heard of Eric Hippel, you should follow him. He's in used to play in the NFL. He lost his son to suicide. He also struggled with his own depression. He'll talk about it. He wrote a book. A and wonderf- he talked about it during the event too. Yeah, he, he talked to the audience. Yeah, it was and emotional and powerful too to hear him speak. He's amazing. Yeah, we're actually doing an event at Canton High School um, next weekend together. We're speaking to the high school. Um, they're putting on sort of like their mini yoga at the big house. Mm-hmm. It's cute. That's so beneficial for them. Yeah. And um, so when we launched this event, I think that what I'm trying to say to you is it even when or even if, like even for retreat, I didn't really know what we were going to do. And I sort of go into this pocket and I always tell people that they should create their own. Um, I do this exercise in teacher training. You have to identify your actual negative thought. Um, It's very specific. Everybody has like their own signature negative thought about themselves. Um, Mine is like, mine is sort of like, what if I fail? But Mm -hmm. it's actually more specific than just like, what if I fail? It's actually like, what if I don't do a good job? Or what if I don't reach my potential? There's like this like mix of like this statement that I have inside of my own head. Like your expectations for yourself are are higher than anyone's. Yes, Mm -hmm. so high. And I have this fear of like, well, what if, 
what if, yeah, I guess what if I fail, but more like, what if I don't do a good job? How am I going to know? And so, um, when I taught the big house for the first time, I created my own mantra. This is a, it's actually a very helpful exercise. And my personal mantra, whenever I'm nervous is I trust myself. That's it. It aligns every misalignment in my whole energy being. It's like, so when I go on stage, it is stage, right? Like I'm, I'm teaching a class for 1300 people. Mm-hmm. It's stage. And I just say, I trust myself. And I like tune into that pocket because I know that I've done enough work in my past, studying philosophy, practicing yoga. I am aligned with something that is profound in my mind, profound that no matter what, I will be taken care of by my own self. Like I have a part of me that knows better than my agitated mind. And I'm going to step into that pocket and trust my inner being. And that has helped me. So when we step into retreat, I was like, I don't know, what is this opening exercise going to be? And I go back into that. I trust myself. Mm-hmm. And then I'm in the I'm in the pocket of thinking and being creative and all of a sudden the right thing for you for this group um we were talking about how sacred every group that you join is because never again will that group be period mm-hmm. Tulum will never be again you'll mm-hmm. try to you'll come on another retreat and you'll try to create it and it's not possible and how sacred that is and when you're in the moment and you realize that you're in a sacred moment like our podcast will never exist again and we take this moment as a sacred moment because we have an energy and we have a dynamic. And so in that moment, I say, I trust myself because I know that I'm going to sacrifice my agenda in that moment because it's not my mind agenda. It's like this like spiritual agenda. And I'm going to step into what you need, not what I think you need. Mm-hmm. And so that is how I maintain a lot of creativity. Now, when I become agitated, I'm less in that frequency. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I have to manage my personal stress more is because I come out of that frequency. And that to me as an entrepreneur is having the right people in the right place. Yeah. People, a good team is, is more beneficial. I mean, you can really rely on a good team to get you through those bad moments that are inevitable. It is of utmost importance if you are an entrepreneur mm-hmm. to have the right people in the right spots. But most importantly, everybody's going to say this and it's going to sound so like whatever, Know what you're not good at Mm -hmm. and let other people do it. Mm. I know that I am not an organizer at all. I am not your Excel spreadsheet person. And I don't, I sure I could do it. I was, I was doing a lot of organizing in this past year Mm -hmm. and I wasn't, but I, then I wasn't in my creative space. And so finding your right team, that right, like it is like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. It's like, ah, I need this team to create this vision. So as an entrepreneur, like your life is more complex. There's nobody else supporting your vision. You are constantly birthing. It's so intense. You're constantly creating new. You're Mm -hmm. creating newness. You're not upholding something. You're not the God of maintenance. Right. Right. You are the God of Creation. creation. And so that level of fire that an entrepreneur has to put into their life is unlike a lot of people's. I'm not saying that working in a company doesn't mean that you, you're not innovative or doesn't mean that you're not 
um, creative. Um, did I say innovative? I meant innovative and creative. Mm -hmm. But as an entrepreneur, there's nothing in front of you. I'm getting like this visual of like, imagine like, I don't know what that, it's like almost like a video. To me, I'm imagining going back to rock climbing and the difference of like, yeah, you can really crush this climbing path. There's mm -hmm. this route, but are you doing it with a harness on or are you free soloing? You know, um, right. yeah, and, you're and, right and, to that and, yeah. And as yeah. an entrepreneur, you're doing That's this without a, really, a harness, you yeah. know, and, and as someone that maybe, you know, is, is working a corporate job or whatever, it's not any of the less impressive sometimes, Yeah. but there is that harness there. Yeah. It's a really nice, um, that's a really nice way to think about it. We, um, Adam, Adam is also an entrepreneur and we talk about his company a lot, my company. And sometimes we both are just like, I said to him the other night, I was like, can't you just be like a doctor? Can't you, can one of us just like do something normal? And, and he was like, Okay, which one? I was like, well, I can't be a doctor, so I think you need to be one. <laughs> okay, I'm not giving up. I'm not letting go of citizens. So can you do that for for us so that we can be like a little less insane? Mm -hmm. But that is really what it is. You're like in this constant, beautiful, creative mode. And when you're not supported, nothing is feeding your fire. Yeah, it's not It's not as stable. Yeah. Yeah. So you've, you've said a couple of times that you were in the pocket. Um, I often call it like a flow state. Um, and, and obviously teammates are one thing to combat when you're not in the pocket. What are other things that you do as a business owner for when you're not in your flow state, when you're not in the pocket? I think that the best, I, I've had those moments in this past year for sure. And the only thing I can say is I always go back to why. I always go back to my mission. Like if a sales strategy is not working, I'm like, oh, it was misaligned. Mm -hmm. Like if a class isn't working, oh, it was misaligned. Like it doesn't actually hit our mission. So I said to our team actually recently in an admin meeting when um, I always call her the love of my business life, Morgan. <laughs> um, when she was in town, she does like a lot of um, work with us. And um, I said, don't report sales to me anymore. I don't want to hear about sales. Great. We're doing good. If something tragic is happening. Tell me. Mm -hmm. I was like, what I want you to explain to me is if we're doing extremely well, it means that we are on our mission and we are aligned. And if something is not going well, then we need to problem solve, not from the perspective of sales and numbers and whatever. We need to problem solve from a perspective of culture, not, not even customer culture. I'm talking about admin team culture, business mission, business mission, culture, mm -hmm. teacher culture. And, and I don't mean culture like, oh, we have to create something. Citizen has a culture inherently because it has a mission. Mm -hmm. But that is the way that I look at it. If something is if we're not in the flow state, then I've misaligned. And that's why alignment yoga is so freaking awesome. Because. You're literally teaching yourself this mastery of manifestation. That is what alignment yoga is. Manifestation is nothing but you aligning your thought in your heart and putting it in the world. And then you create something. So in yoga, you're literally man or manifesting your body in a specific state. And when you can't align a thought and see the whole picture, when your intention is not correct, mm -hmm. when it expresses in your body, 
It's not going to look how you think it looks, how you want it to look. Now, that's not to say that like there's a perfect pose. It just means when you think quad, does your quad turn on? It does. Mm -hmm. So what you're actually doing is you're training your own thinking to be directed in a specific direction so that you can create what you want in your life. It also makes me think about sacrifices and how a lot of times we may sacrifice something to get to somewhere that we may perceive to be where we want to be. Um, Mm -hmm. But instead, it's just kind of diluting what the actual mission is Um, Mm -hmm. when when at times you could sacrifice things and it actually does increase the mission. Yeah. So how do you necessarily differentiate between the two? Depends what you mean by sacrifice. So explain to me sort of in a context of like what you're considering a sacrifice. So like if, a sacrifice. If you had your mind set on a graphic designer to work with who had the aesthetic that you totally feel is aligned with your brand and that graphic designer either wasn't available or submitted something that just does not sit with you, um, but it was maybe too close to deadline or whatever and, and you had to go to print with it, um, that's a sacrifice where I feel like it's diluting the mission sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a sacrifice that kind of can feed into the mission is obviously, you know, uh, not being able to be at home from 5.30 in the morning till 10.30 at night. Yeah. Um, those are the sacrifices, obviously, that are going to feed towards the mission. So when do you know when to sacrifice and, and when to hold your ground? I don't know if I do. Um, well, I know from a business perspective, um, that we don't sacrifice quality of teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't sacrifice customer service for, for students. Mm -hmm. Um, and most importantly, uh, we definitely do not sacrifice how somebody is impacted in the company. So... Now, and the same perspective, which is really actually interesting, um, we follow a concept that Zingerman's follows called servant leadership. Um, there's a there's a paradox that exists within that. When you say we serve everybody, you can't serve everybody because somebody's basic needs are going to be left out. So you always have to align yourself with the whole. And so we sacrifice maybe an individual's need if it betters the experience of the whole because the whole connects to more people. Mm. And so in that context, that's sort of like the filter that you can um, use Mm -hmm. is that at some points you have to sacrifice specifically for the individual. At some points you have to sacrifice for the whole and then that's your management. That's an entrepreneur. And maybe also you answered the question by just telling me what exactly you know you won't sacrifice on. Mm-hmm. Because if you have those you know solid ground rules, I'm not going to sacrifice this or that. You know, you won't ever have to jeopardize that. And and it comes down to selfish versus unselfish. That's that's what you're you have to start to think about. It's selfish versus unselfish. Mm-hmm. So Zingerman's is that are you are you, is that something that you've modeled the the uh, business off of because you're close to it? Um, no. We found it. So Citizen was doing Citizen, mm-hmm. which we love. And this was about two years into Citizen being Citizen. Um, 
and they put words to something that we didn't know other people were doing. Mm-hmm. See, we weren't trying to make like hip, cool culture. Let's have pillows in our office, even though we do because we're yoga people, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like we walk around barefoot and do all the weird things that we do. But we weren't trying to be like hip and cool. We were trying to model our company off of a mission that not everybody actually fulfills. They say they have a mission statement. Like we have a very clear mission statement and a very clear vision statement. Our very like water uh, concentrated mission statement is like everybody exists to be seen, essentially. Mm -hmm. That's like a nice way to put it. Everybody exists to be like you exist to be seen. I exist to be seen and we exist to see you. It's like that encapsulates what Citizen U is trying to do. From a vision perspective, we really want to uphold leadership that's not just focused on one person, meaning me. Mm -hmm. And so servant leadership is based on the higher you get in the company, the more it is your obligation to serve. So this morning I was up 5 a.m. I taught a free class for graduated trainees from 6.30 to 8 a.m., not because I had to, I didn't have to, but just that's as much as they didn't have to show up. Correct. Mm-hmm. And it's but you had a room full of, of really interested people. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, in, and that's part of what servant leadership is, is that um, they say in this one book that we read, we read their stuff every Monday because what company do you read about that has this level of internal values? I'm not talking about the values that they present to the customer. I'm talking about the values that they present to each other. And that's what we liked about Singerman's is that internally, and I don't even know if they, I'm not saying they don't execute it. Mm -hmm. I'm not in their company enough to know that it is or is not true. How would I know that? But they're putting words to things that I love and that I believe in and that have served us very well and served me and my level of happiness very well. Um, so what's one piece of advice you'd give to an entrepreneur that's starting out in their own business right now? Don't think you're going to work less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good advice. Um, <laughs> that is that is like the best piece of advice. Um, identify w- why, I mean, yes, identify why your product is special. There's no question, but really hook yourself to a mission. Don't make a product just because. Make a product because there's something that's important to you about the product itself. Mm-hmm. And you have to be fearless. Now, you can have fear. I have fear. I, um, I have a lot of fear, actually. Like, I'll lose sleep over, are we going in the right direction? What if we fail? So maybe that is my negative thought pattern. What if we fail? So what if I fail? That's probably what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to that. Right. Conversation we had. But you have to still be fearless. So don't expect yourself to not have fear because you will have fear. That fear is normal, but you still have to act fearlessly. Very important. Hmm. Um, just kind of moving a little bit because my podcasts are always really nonlinear and all well, over the place. that's how I think. So perfect. Yeah. Um, what's the significance of the time of the day between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. to you? No, we're going back to philosophy. Cool. I'm into (laughs) it. Um, So 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. are given in traditional philosophy 
as a time of day when your mind is quiet and your intellect is at its highest. Um, it's at its most attention, mm-hmm. um, greatest level of inten- attention. It's not something that um, you can explain. It's more in our nature. And four to 6 a.m. is the time that they tell you you should study. It's called the sattvic time of the day. Um it's poised, it's balanced, it's objective. Mm-hmm. It's quiet. It's quiet. It's the most conducive time of the day to study. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everybody's going to be like, unless you were out the night before. Yes, unless you were out the night before. <laughs> 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. is your rajasic time, which is your passionate time. Um, and people have all different levels of these qualities in them. I'm mm-hmm. a very rajasic person. Mm-hmm. Um Define that word. Uh, rajas is a, oh rajas yeah, rajas yeah, yeah, yeah. is um these are thought textures yeah or they're called gunas but I can't go too far into them because it takes a long time and there's, there's a five lot. of them right there's three three okay there's three, three of them yeah um and then you have tamas which is your sort of chaotic indolent I don't like to say the word lazy because we have so much so many feelings about the word lazy. But it is sort of lazy, and it's from the hours of um, 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. So you can see that. The chaos. Yeah, and if you think about it like food, like sattvic food is bitter. Rajasic food is caffeine and salt, two of my favorite things. Yeah. Um, and um, tamasic food would be fried food. Mm. So you can sort of just see what it is. And so 4 to 6 a.m. is this like sacred time of the day. It's not easy. Um, I worked on Tuesday night until about 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. And so is it easy to wake up Wednesday morning at five after I got home, had dinner and like try to run to bed basically so that I could try to get some sleep? No. And some days you don't wake up and it's not about being dogmatic to yourself. It's about being disciplined to the right degree. I like that. Um, a, f- a few years back, you were included in ours, our Detroit's best dress list. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> what's your strategy for staying grounded in the material world while still being such a, a fashionista? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Keeping your outfits on fleek. Yeah, it's That's like not even true. Um, no, you I, are very stylish. Okay, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, I don't feel like that most of the days. I feel just sweaty and in yoga clothes. Even in the yoga clothes, it's they're styling. Okay. Um, so, so I guess my, I mean the 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 question derives from um being torn between yeah. a lot of Western and Eastern philosophies. Yeah. Yep. So, um, I find it a very complicated relationship for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody it was very interesting. Somebody wrote me an email. I'm actually going to coffee with him. Mm-hmm. I think I. I I think I terrified him. He wrote me an email about sort of like Citizen Yoga has become a lifestyle brand. How can you say that it's a yoga company anymore? And I was like, oh, what an interesting perspective. I'm going to call him. It could almost be a compliment. Right. And well, it was. Yeah. So yeah. this was, what was interesting. <laughs> okay, good. So I called him. Poor guy. He did not think I would ever call him. Uh-huh. I was like, hi, is this person X? And he's like, yes. I'm like, oh, this is Casey from Citizen. I just got your email. I find it so interesting can you talk to me about it? And he was like, huh? I'm like, and I think I just like literally scared the pants off him. I was like, no, I'm genuinely interested. Like, what is your perspective? And, um, I was explaining to him, like, I love fashion. Um, and I've always wanted citizen to be a lifestyle brand because to me, the reason I wanted that is I wanted people who did or did not do yoga to be affected by the quality of community that we have. 
Mm -hmm. So that's why I wanted it to be a lifestyle brand. I didn't want people to interact with Citizen who only wanted to do yoga because not everybody wants to do yoga. I want the person who's at the coffee shop who will never do yoga to feel the effect of the love that Citizen has for its community. So to me, a lifestyle brand means that you know Citizen Yoga even in the quality of its community, even if you don't step into our studio ever. Yeah, and there are events this summer that are surrounding yep. mostly the community part. I mean, there's always going to be a yoga class available because it's there. But, yep. you know, that's not the main focus on any of the event descriptions or anything. You know, yeah. join us for a class and after we're doing this, you know. Yeah, we do something called family dinner. It's one of my favorite things I came up with where mm -hmm. there's no reason for it. We pay for three appetizers and you can only come with a plus one. Mm. And, um, I didn't know that. You can only come with a plus you one. You can only come with a plus one. Mm -hmm. And... um by yourself is very scary. We can't do that to people, but um, you can only come with a plus one and it's just, uh, there's no motive. I was literally just saying this, like every networking event you go to is like, okay, well, what am I going to get out of this person? What am I going to get from this network? It's like, well, what if you just went to an event where there was no motive that you could just hang out with people and it was relaxing. Mm -hmm. So going back to your question, um, I think that I can be a little bit and I mean this like in a very loving way to myself, like a little materialistic because I love clothing mm -hmm. a lot. Um, I don't, I try my best not to overconsume clothing. Um, I donate every season, lots of clothes and usually to people at Citizen Yoga who mm -hmm. <laughs> are very excited to receive, you know, sometimes I just purchase leggings because I'm like, oh, I'm going to wear these for a little bit, but I wear them so much that again, every object, no object has inherent joy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I have to keep purchasing leggings too, though, because that's part of my job. You're right. So um, I think it's really, I still think it sounds so silly, but I think it comes back for, for me of always making sure that I get what I need and I don't overconsume. I don't know if there's a balance. I think that everybody's materialistic desires, you have to keep them in check though. They're very hard to keep in check because I find it's very challenging because you see what other people have on social media. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Instagram is just, it is a shopping mall. Yeah, it's not even just what people have. Like if, if we're talking about like, you know, Lululemon or something and yeah. all, all of a sudden I open Instagram, for some reason, Lululemon's going to be targeting an ad right yeah. toward to me. And like for me, I'll, I'll be on Nike like browsing. I love Nike. And I'll be on their <laughs> website browsing, you know, some shoes or clothes. And then the next thing you know, those exact shoes. products are, yeah. are being targeted to me through a, a carousel of ads. And, you know, it's hard to escape that. Right. I mean, so when I was at the academy, um, not defining yourself by your accessories, um, understanding that what's next, what's next is not the thing that's going to make you happier and really trying to consciously consume. And what I mean by that is proving to yourself that something will not make you happier. Just by watching its shelf life in your life. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, your value system is monitoring your materialism. Mm -hmm. And that is very hard, but it's very possible. And I, so I, I do that. Like, I really have to be conscientious about, um, you know, my mom will make fun of me because out of all of my sisters, I always cared about clothes and shoes and things that, <laughs> you know, it was just in my nature to like love this stuff. 
Um, and I also think that it can be a really artful expression. Like it doesn't always have to be so materialistic. It also can be an expression of your creativity. And so sort of balancing that is really just monitoring the mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question, but no, I was I think trying it's, it's to. No, I great insight. Um, just a couple more questions to wrap up here. I think we'll have to do a part two. Okay. If you're okay with that. I'm but, happy. Um, I love um, So uh, kind of ending on a lighthearted note. Sure. What's your favorite Sanskrit pose name in yoga? Oh, did I ask, did I ask you this? Did no, I, I, I asked you on the way home from the oh, retreat. You did? I, don't I don't think you ever answered. Sitara did, but you, you didn't. Oh, man. What's my favorite Sanskrit? Well, I don't know if I have one. You know what Adams is? What is Adams? Urbadhanarasana. Oh my god, that was so good. I um. So my favorite. How about this? Maybe not yoga pose. Mm -hmm. Um, My favorite word in Sanskrit is shraddha. Shraddha is translates to faith or um, your ability to follow something. And this is, of course, there's all these different translations, but this is the one that Swamiji gave me. Your ability to follow something all the way to its end. And I love that idea of of faith because um, it refers to the darkness that you don't yet understand. And so that's a word that I've always kept very close to me because um, Tagore has a quote. It says, um, faith is the bird who feels the light and sings while the dawn is still dark. Faith is the bird who feels the light and sings while the dawn is still dark. Mm. And like a bird who doesn't wait for the sun to sing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you can feel that in your heart, like it's coming. Mm-hmm. You know dawn is there, but you don't see it. You can't, it's not there, mm-hmm. but you feel it and you're going to sing. And um, I lived a lot of my life more in a place of darkness, but I always felt like I needed to keep my heart up, uplifted. And so I use that visual of even if I'm in the darkest place, there's still going to be light. And so that to me is the faith. And so when I think of Shraddha, like I think of citizen yoga as Shraddha, I was always so nervous that I wasn't going to be able to complete citizen yoga. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I still wonder like, well, what does that mean to complete citizen? Is there completion? What does that completion look like? And um, so really stepping into Shraddha, like can I have the faith no matter what, no matter the difficulty, like this past year for me, not in my personal life, but in business was very complex. And it took a lot for me to push through. And it was, it's been so beautiful. It pushed me into learning again. I'm going and learning again. I'm starting my own study groups again. It put that darkness pushed me into more light. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's something that I really want to gift people is even if you, you're you in darkness, you can be that bird. Mm. That's how I felt when I was at the academy. I was in deep darkness. But I, I knew that I was studying knowledge that was going to make me feel light. That's beautiful. And I, as, a, as a student, I'm really excited for you to come back from your, te- uh, your, your training. Your, your yeah. training. training. Yeah, it's great. Um, and thank you so much for doing this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. 
Thanks again for tuning in. And thanks to our sponsor, Great Lakes Coffee Roasting Company, for keeping us super caffeinated in the studio here. And just a reminder to our listeners, coffee lovers, you can use code WELLBEING at checkout at greatlakescoffee.com for 10% off your first order of coffee, coffee supplies, and much more. Thank you.